Hello, and welcome to Medieval, a medieval pop culture podcast. My name is Oliver Brady. And I'm Sarah Ipschdecker, and on this podcast, we talk about medieval books, movies, and television. Uh, we talk about what they get right, what they get wrong, and what they tell us about how modern people see the medieval world. And unlike last week, where I said I like to watch books, um, which was an <laughs> embarrassing thing to start the podcast with, we actually read books sometimes, and we watch movies and stuff. Sarah, why did we decide to do this podcast? Or more importantly, why did you decide to do this podcast? Because I just came along for the ride. So I really wanted to do this podcast because I am a medieval historian professionally. I have a PhD in medieval history and uh, teach pre-modern history at the university level. And I think the Middle Ages is really exciting. And I am interested in how basically the modern world sees this period that I teach about. And I teach a lot of people who don't know much about the medieval world except for medieval movies. So what we're going to do is we're going to try and take a look at some of the movies which are super popular or were super popular back in 1995, as this movie we're about to watch today is. And we're going to see, well, what did they get right? What did they get wrong? And why are they making people think that the medieval period was like the most violent era in history? We're watching the movie First Night. Yes. Which so was from 1995, the same as our first movie, Braveheart. I actually came across a Roger Ebert review of First Night, which apparently the main point of it was this is the shitty version of Braveheart, um, <laughs> which I don't entirely agree with, but I was entertained that that was the review. That's pretty good from Roger Ebert. Um, how many thumbs up did he give it? I think two. Well, he's only got two. That's a good job, Roger Ebert. Or wait, no, it was like two. It was like two out of five, I think, was the rating. Wow, what a weird number of thumbs to have. Well, <laughs> so the movie we're doing is 1995's uh, I nearly said Braveheart. <laughs> 1995's First Night, which stars Sean Connery as a very old and very Scottish King Arthur. It also stars Richard Gere, who I always think of as a silver fox kind of older type guy. Um, but in this, he is supposed to be the young man to the elderly Sean Connery. Um, and has very luscious brown locks, which is either a wig or something that he lost by the time he was in, um, what was he, in uh, Runaway Bride, which is in 1999. He's definitely great by then. I want to actually talk about Richard Gere in this movie. right? I, As a kid growing up, I, <clears throat> I'm uh, your typical um, straight white male. And I'm obviously your typical uh, male in general because I think I know everything even when I don't. Is Richard Gere attractive? I feel like... I I have mixed feelings on this subject, actually. And my mixed feelings are that I feel like I thought Richard Gere was attractive when I saw him in movies in my teens. And now I'm not quite sure I get it. That's what I was thinking. Because I remember seeing him in An Officer and a Gentleman as a kid. And genuinely having like, I want, I want to be this guy. This guy is like super handsome and super cool. And then I watched it again recently. I was like, nah, maybe not. I'm not sure. It's like, maybe it is something that gets you at a, at a particular age and then just kind of lets go. Everybody has a Richard Gere phase in their teens. <laughs> I think we do, yeah. We, we'll, we'll have to get some guests on in the future and see if we get... I wonder if he's done any more medieval movies. We should be able to get him on and see if we did. Maybe we can get Richard Gere. No, but anyway, that's not <laughs> I, I, bet, I bet we can get Richard Gere on this podcast. We probably can get him on the podcast. I wonder what he's doing now. It also stars Julia Armand, very uh, beautiful actress who was on her way to stardom in the mid-90s, around about this time, and starred in several relatively large movies, um, and then seems to kind of just have disappeared a little bit. 
And I'm pretty sure that when I thought about this movie, I thought Julia Roberts was in it. So <laughs> because I, are you sure you weren't just thinking of Runaway Bride? I might have been thinking of Runaway Bride, which is something we and can't Pretty do Woman for the podcast. We cannot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's probably a third one out there that they've done. There's, I think there might guaranteed be. Guaranteed, is a trilogy of them. It starts with three main actors. So we have Sean Connery who's playing King Arthur. We have Richard Gere who's playing Lancelot, and we have. Julia Armand, who's playing Guinevere. So clearly we are about to go into the Arthurian legend. Now, before we talk about, we bring across our enumeratio, which is our recap section. I want to just say in advance that King Arthur is my favorite uh, historical story or legend. And I tend to get very defensive about it. And I tend to like movies that feature King Arthur more than I should. So if uh, if Sarah is saying the movie is bad and I'm not going, eh, it's not that bad. That's probably my own uh, love of that particular legend um, taking over and not the fact that the movie is bad because it's bad, guys. It's really bad. There are things that are bad. There are things that are really bad. Um, I enjoy King Arthur. I enjoy Arthurian legend. Um, I'm not sure I'm as defensive of Arthurian legend as you might be. But, you know, it is a kind of classic medieval thing. And I also kind of like movies that are Arthurian legend because I feel like I don't have to take it the historical accuracy too seriously all the time because it's not like he was real so well <laughs> you say he wasn't real but to some of us he was real in our hearts sarah and he represented everything that was good about humanity uh, he doesn't in this uh, movie no he doesn't <laughs> or he doesn't in another thing we will be reviewing in the future bbc series Marilyn. um sarah what's the first section we do in our podcast uh, so we begin with the section enumeratio, which essentially means recap in Latin. Let's let's go with that in terms of a Latin translation. Okay, and since we don't have a jingle this week either, um, I told Sarah that I would sing uh, the intro until we do get a jingle. So enumeratio. <laughs> so bad. Oh. No, it's great. Just keep going. Go for it. Voice like an angel. Um, so. The first thing that popped up on the screen as you're watching this is uh, it says, <laughs> it specifies that it's a PG-13 movie for brutal medieval battles. Maybe they're trying to lay a little bit too heavy on the medieval ages or the middle ages being violent. Yeah, so that's something we discussed last time is that one of the main perceptions people have about the Middle Ages was that it was this extremely violent period that uh, the medieval that the medieval world was more violent than the modern world. And that's clearly what they're trying to imply by specifying brutal medieval battles as opposed to just brutal battles or graphic violence or any of a number of other things they might have said. One thing I will say before we get into this is the battle scenes are well done, but I wouldn't exactly call them brutal, especially since yeah. we've just come from Braveheart. Braveheart was much more graphic. This I didn't think was especially graphic or bloody. I mean, so there are battle sequences, but they're a bit more stylized, I would say. They're definitely very stylized. And the movie starts with a voiceover. Sorry, it's an opening text. A scroll yes. of a very fancy type shows up on screen and tells us that King Arthur has established peace after many wars, except for Maligant, who used to be a knight. In fact, it was the first knight who got a little bit greedy and decided that he wanted to challenge for power. So Maligant kind of walked off from the round table, leaving a space to be filled. Hmm... Oh, wait, is that where the name of this movie comes from? 
it's because he was the first knight. Oh, I think I missed that. <laughs> oh, and also because Lancelot got to have sex with Guinevere uh, on the first night. Spoiler because, alert. <laughs> spoiler alert, that, that's how it works. Um, so we then go to a little village where Lancelot, played by the very handsome, apparently, Richard Gere, and he is dueling with some villagers um, and just showing off how good he is with a sword. And I'll be honest with you, He's pretty damn good. I think that's actually, is that in the opening scroll too, that Lancelot has always been good with a sword and was using it uh, basically to earn money, that he's going around from village to village and basically telling people who think they're good with a sword but are not as good with a sword as he is, that he will fight them for money and then he always wins. Because he's really good with a sword. Yes. And I think he might he might be the, uh, the medieval equivalent of a busker. Yeah. So he's just like showing up, he puts out the hat and he's like, come along and try and sword me. And if you can sword me, you can keep the money. And then he's obviously the best person with it, and he's good. And as I said, this is actually kind of a charming scene. And he's um, he's talking to the villagers, and he's nice, and he's not being mean about it. And then somebody says to him, how can I get to be as good as you? And he says, you have to care about nothing. And then we all die a little bit inside, worrying about handsome, handsome Lancelot and how he doesn't care. But as long as well as his brooding, he also gives some solidly good advice, which is uh, you have to be the only one with the sword. Which is, that's pretty damn good advice as well. Yeah. Right? How do you always win a sword fight? Be the only one with a sword. Yeah, which is, no, that's solid yeah. advice. And then we cut to uh, Maligant, the villain or story, played by uh, Ben Cross. Now, Ben Cross is an actor I kind of like a lot um, because I've seen him in a lot of things. He's almost always a bad guy. And... <laughs> The sound of a beer opening. It's, almost, it's a sound it's like of like the flophouse. <laughs> so um, he is almost always a bad guy and he always commits to it. So if anyone's ever seen The Scorpion King, and I'm sure some of the people listening have, and I might try and convince Sarah to do this podcast later on, even though it clearly doesn't fit within the remits. I mean, our... we can do it. I just don't know anything about ancient Egypt. So we can wing it. Um <laughs> And we find out that he's really bad and he shows up into the same village and he just decides to murder people. Yeah, so one of the things that medieval movies often do to present the Middle Ages as violent is that they just have completely pointless violence against miscellaneous villagers and peasants. Uh, So that's what we have here is that he just goes and murders a bunch of villagers for no apparent reason, I guess just to annoy King Arthur. Yeah, I think... That seems to be the the only gist of it. He just goes in, kills the villagers, and then says to the surviving ones, look after, you know, make sure King Arthur finds out about this. And you're like, what? Like, come on. Last night, men from this village crossed the border and killed three of my people. In reprisal, I have destroyed your village. The borderlands have been lawless long enough. No now. But I am the Lord. Don't just randomly kill villagers. Yeah, so that was not the most reasonable depiction of violence in the Middle Ages, (laughs) as things go. Um, (laughs) And then we get to the lady of our movie. Um, So Sarah, where do we go then? So we go to Leoness. So this is a place name that is taken from Arthurian legend. It's not really a real place. Um, and so she's there, there are a lot of sheep, there's a very beautiful church, and she's chatting with priests about her upcoming marriage. Uh, so she is the ruler of Leoness, Arthur is the ruler of Camelot. We actually started, we know she's a, she's 
a very um, down-to-earth person because we actually see her playing football at the beginning. That's right. I forgot. So she's talking to the priest and she's like, and the priest suggests, as you said, because she's the ruler of Leoness and Arthur's the ruler of Camelot and Arthur has never been married, perhaps a political marriage would be good. Yes. And so she says, oh, I could never marry a man without love. Uh, this is something that nobody in the Middle Ages would say, especially if you are an extremely wealthy person. And in fact, as I'll talk a little bit about later on, people actually thought marriage and love were antithetical in this period, in the or in the period <laughs> that this Arthurian legend is coming from, at least. I could never marry a man without love. I've always known that. Arthur wears his power so lightly, has such gentleness in his eyes. I've never known anyone like him, Oswald. Uh, so that's not something she would have said. She would have very much assumed that political marriage was the norm. And given that she is in an area that is, it seems like in particular, subject to some attacks from Maligant and other, I don't know, unsavory characters, that marrying a very powerful king would be a really good idea. Exactly. So she thinks to herself, I'm not going to marry without love. I'm going to go and check Arthur out. So it's kind of like she swiped right and he swiped right on uh, medieval Tinder and they're going to go and she's going to meet them to see how things go. But I mean, we all know she's going to get married. And she seems to have kind of agreed that she'll probably marry him, but kind of reserves the right to change her mind. So I guess also sort of like a Tinder date. Exactly. Uh. (laughs) And as she's traveling towards Camelot, because she needs to meet King Arthur, and King Arthur's not going to come out and meet her. They get attacked. And who is it who does the attacking? Only Maligant, big evil guy from this particular uh, movie. And they trick the knights. So the knights are in a battle, and they manage to run off three or four of these brigands that attack them, and they go chasing after the, um, the other members who ran away. And it turns out that they were duped, and some other... Soldiers and Maligan's men kind of attack from the background. Um, and they're trying to kidnap our Lady of Leoness. Yes, so Guinevere is kind of left to her own devices because all of the knights her, that were her escort are sort of off dealing with Maligan's people. She's in this carriage. She's with a lady-in-waiting, who I believe is the only other woman in this movie. Um, I think she is. I don't think she has a name. I'm. She almost definitely does not have a name. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point she does say something about looking forward to meeting Arthur so I'm not even certain if this can claim to pass the Bechdel test because they've been talking about Arthur while they were there But and then she throws her out of a carriage and she's never seen again and she's never seen again but she's <laughs> you know she saved her, her friend uh-huh. and she manages to escape into the woods and hide in a thicket of uh, of wild grass now, as this was all happening, along comes our hero, Lancelot. Now, I'm using hero in inverted commas here because, yes, he might kill some bad guys. I don't really think we can think of him as heroic from a lot of the stuff he does in this movie. Yeah, so this is the moment when I decided I hated Lancelot. This is the moment where, um, as we were watching it, I got a message from Sarah which said, hashtag let him die, which is Sarah's way of saying... She doesn't like a character. Usually a male character. Almost always a male character. And it's almost always 100% apt as well. 
Um, so I got a hashtag let him die because he does come in and save her. But in order to do this, he has to pretend that he's going to help them rape her. He kills a couple of them. I'm going to put pretend in quote marks here. <sighs> All right. But can I have her when you're finished with her? You were after the woman. <sighs> of course. Of course. Have you ever seen anything so beautiful in your whole life? Yeah, he is pretending. I'm not certain he is. I think maybe it's because Dave wanted to go first that he even decides to kill them. Yeah. Guinevere is being held by one of the creepiest dudes who's ever creeped on a movie where Lancelot's looking at him and says, oh, she's got a gift for you. She's got something for you. Why don't you turn around and let her give it to you? And the guy's like, pretty, pretty. It's and he turns so out, it's gross. so gross. Ugh. But when she turns around... She does have a gift for him, and it's the shape of a crossbow bolt in his stomach. Uh, good job, going Best possible gift. Oh, pretty. Pretty. Now, what have you got for me, then? It was the best possible gift, and she manages to kill him. And effectively, as I'm concerned at that point, she's uh, she's escaped herself. She's, she's managed to escape. Yes, yeah, so she is, however, still with Lancelot, um, who pretty much almost immediately after having, quote, rescued her, despite the fact that she did a lot of the work herself, as you said, goes in for an extremely non-consensual kiss that kind of looks like a surprise attack. Mm. Uh, he slaps her. She slaps him. She does slap him, and it was a very good slap. It's one of those ones where you're thinking... Yeah, and maybe just follow in with the left as well, Guinevere, just so he knows exactly how mad you are. At this point, the rest of the knights start to show up. Oh, wait, I do want to add in. Oh. He also, I'm pretty sure, literally says, you know you want me, so... I I didn't want to add that in. I, I want to add that in. <laughs> I'm not to be had for the wanting, sir. Why not? I want you. You want me. You may find this childish arrogance impresses servant girls. I can tell when a woman wants me. I can see it in her eyes. <laughs> Not in my eyes. <laughs> because it's one of the creepiest things he could possibly say. She's like, don't do that again. And he's like, oh, you know you want me. Yeah, I um, want to emphasize that I really hate Lancelot. Let him he die. Is- detestable. He is a, a let him die. Now, again, <laughs> I think we're supposed to think that he's a sexy rogue. But in reality, he's just a greasy creep. Yeah. Um, and we're going to talk about that more later on in our uh, true and false section. At the yes, end. we are. So she manages to get to Camelot with the assistance of uh, a character played um, by a very young Liam Cunningham. Um, and for those of you who watch Game of Thrones, which I'm assuming most people listening to this do, uh, that's Sir Davos, uh, the Onion Knight. Yes. And... He it when he comes on screen, he still got Sir Davis's voice even back then. Was Lady Guinevere in danger? We were all in danger, sir. It was a well-planned attack. Two separate forces. Lady Guinevere was in danger, sir. Yes. But he looks like a little boy. Like I, it's, it's very cute. Maybe not. Uh, he's he was a handsome man. Yeah. I mean, he probably still is a handsome man. I don't know, but I mean, back <laughs> then he was a, he was a handsome, fresh-faced young actor. And he- and, um, She's not bad looking in a grizzled fatherly like way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean like a, a King Arthur way? A King Arthur type, yeah. <laughs> Which we're going to get to in a minute. There's some creepy stuff with him too. Yeah. Uh, so Agravain is his name and he greets 
Arthur. Uh, Arthur says maybe 10 words to his future wife before stopping to have a full conversation with Agravain, which is, what happened? Uh, he's not a dragon, but he just sounds like Sean Connery, and I can't do a Sean Connery. What happened, Agravain? <laughs> and um, Agravain says that they got attacked, it was maligant, and then King Arthur basically tells him, don't let it happen again. Maligan doesn't care how many men he loses, so long as he wins. I'll not fail you again, sir. We fought enough battles together to know that no one is perfect, but I need to know everything. Sorry. Uh, as like he had no control over it, like they were attacked. It's 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 what happens. And then King Arthur says the first of his creepy lines, which is <sighs> I miss your father. <laughs> Which is, we were good friends. Yeah. Why are you entertaining this, Arthur? And it's not that abnormal in the Middle Ages that you would have had a political marriage with somebody who, uh, you know, where the man was much older than the woman. I mean, that's not that weird. But I feel like this movie is trying to make King Arthur seem at least somewhat attractive, but also is really doubling down on the he was a friend of her dad's, and it's really gross. Yeah. Uh, Guinevere has a quote about beauty, Sarah. And if you say Guinevere's quote, I'll I'll try and say <clears throat> what Sir Arthur or King Arthur says in this. My father always said to put no faith in beauty. Well, I remember how he looked at you. And then I vomited. I was brought up to set no faith in finery. Beauty doesn't last, my father always said. Yes, but I remember the way he looked at you. And I remember him saying, do all fathers think their daughters are so beautiful? Yeah. (laughs) What are you talking about, King Arthur? Don't remind her that you were looking at her as a little girl. It also kind of makes it sound like her father is looking at her inappropriately as a little girl. And it's awful it's very cringy yeah so they're having in camelot a celebration because they got a new queen and because the king's getting married and up until this point they were all worried that he wasn't going to get married and for some reason i'm not sure why i mean he probably could have got married he's probably busy uh, killing everybody well he's he's old enough to be guinevere's father and doesn't have an heir so everyone's very concerned so they're a little bit nervous Mm. so they're having this uh, kind of celebration, and one of the celebration things they have is a gauntlet. Now, the gauntlet is a very popular part of the King Arthur myth, and in the King Arthur myth, various different knights have completed the gauntlet to get through. In most cases, it involves fighting sword fights, uh, mock sword fights. Um, I think they're referred to as melees a lot. So fighting melee combat against the knights and Lancelot wins some of them, Percival wins some of them, in a lot of them Tristan uh, or you know somebody who's equivalent of Tristan will win some of them. Um, but in this case they decided that it was an episode of Wipeout or American Ninja Warrior involving swords <laughs> and Lancelot is the only one who does it and he does it because he doesn't wear all of the protective clothing because as we know Lancelot has nothing to live for. Right. So he doesn't worry about dying. He's just going to win. So he's up for going through this bizarre obstacle course, which is basically like, I don't know, knife or sort of giant knives falling on your head, more or less, is kind of what it looks like. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's weird. there are like giant 
swinging balls that can knock people off and there's like cogs you have to go through and we get to see four or five people getting knocked off and as I said he just goes through it because he finds out that the prize is a kiss from Guinevere and she had told him that she'll never do that again. Yep, because that's what you do is you offer women's sexual favors as prizes for military success. I assume that's how it works. Yep. Yeah, the first thing I do, swipe right on Tinder, and then I tell a girl I'm going to annex Denmark for her. Um, it's not going to be mine. And then in that case, I'll, I'll, I'll get to go on a second date. Yep, that's how it works. <laughs> you heard it all here first. So instead of going up and kissing her, he, in what I assume is meant to be a romantic gesture, uh, he has a little private conversation with her where he tells her to ask him. Um, because he said that he wouldn't do it until she asked him. And then he decides to kiss her hand instead. And then says something about, oh, I have only one heart to give or something like this. Something It's something along those lines. It's also not that private of a conversation. Her fiancé is literally right there. I dare not kiss so lovely a lady. I only have one heart to lose. Yeah, and, and it's but super Arthur creepy. doesn't seem Arthur doesn't seem to really have a problem with it. Yeah, he's probably going a little deaf in his old age. <laughs> and it cannot be stressed how much older King Arthur looks. Like it's a than... really like pervy dad vibe that we're getting from is, King Arthur here. It is very very bad. Um, but he takes Lancelot along, and he's like, "Oh, you look really cool, and you're really good at going through this sort of thing." Perhaps you would like to come and join me at the round table at some stage. You're like, what? Because he passed the gauntlet, apparently. That suddenly, I mean, this isn't the the time where he offers it to him properly, but it is heavily implied that Arthur is suggesting that Lancelot stays in Camelot to effectively join the Knights of the Round Table. And Lancelot's like, I will stay. I've got more joy than you think, which... As Sarah said, um, I believe you described it as he's basically saying, I want to have sex with your future wife. It's like a barely euphemistic way of saying, I want to sleep with your fiance. It's not even that guarded. (laughs) No, it's really not. But apparently he doesn't think this is weird. So Lancelot stays. Well, Arthur's probably thinking at his age, because let's, I really gotta stress this. He's super old. Um, He's like, somebody's going to have to do it. It's the exact opposite of what we had in Braveheart, where... <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, you need to bring in a young man, yeah, to yeah, do the job. To replace him. Um, so Arthur and Guinevere chat a little bit more um, about how he's a dad's friend. And she says something which implies that she's not that into him. And then Arthur says... I will still defend your country. Right, because at the moment, at least, everyone seems to be on the same page, more or less, about how political marriages work. Do you want to marry me? My lord? You don't have to marry me because your father wanted it, or because your country needs it. Camelot will protect Leoness, whether you marry me or not. Yeah, (laughs) it's like, everyone seems to be a little bit off on this, except I think 
Guinevere is much more in Lemonet because she says, he says, uh, love the man, not the position. And she's kind of like hedging a little bit and like, well, why not both? And I respect you and things like that. Marry the king, Guinevere. But love the man. Yeah. um, And then they have a really creepy kiss, which totally takes me out of the movie because it, it looks like as... We've said a couple of times, it looks like a dad kissing his granddaughter. Maybe It's terrible. It, it is terrible. She's quite young in this movie. He is quite or, um, Sean Connery-esque. There's only two versions of Sean Connery. There's young, sexy Sean Connery, and there's old Sean Connery. There's no middle-aged Sean Connery. It's James Bond and it's Harrison Ford's dad. That's exactly <laughs> what we're doing here. And we've got Harrison Ford's dad. And it's just bad. <laughs> yeah. And Julia Ormond is a woman who I don't know exactly how old she's she is in this, but she's looks like probably thirties, early thirties. I think she could even be younger than this. Yeah. This is roughly the same year as Sabrina. And I remember when we were watching it, she's playing a seventeen, eighteen year old yeah. in Sabrina. So she might be twenty four, twenty five. Yeah. And he's definitely touching late sixties at this stage. Yeah. It's hmm. it's not great. It's not great. But Maligant is even worse. And he sets up a system where they kidnap Guinevere. And it's kind of a clever thing. They come across... Um, Camelot is built on a lake and on an island. I'm assuming it's trying to represent Avalon, which in Arthurian legend is where Arthur basically lives. And it's an island in the middle of a lake. Uh, not the lake where the lady lives, but a lake. A different lake. and A different lake. And the boat comes across claiming to be coming from Leoness. And obviously... Guinevere wants to find out what's going on in Leoness. But as she comes down to the docks in the middle of the night, as any future queen would... Yep, the future queens just wander about all the time, as we learn from Braveheart. She gets dragged into the boat and they open a lamp and a horse starts galloping away on the other side and it pulls away almost like a powerboat so that the knights have no chance of catching up. And then Lancelot decides to jump in and rescue her. So he just jumps straight in because he sees this happening because he was probably creeping on her in some way and jumps Almost out definitely. and he grabs, grabs the tail end of the rope and gets pulled across the, the lake, which is why he is at the front end of the rescue mission uh, for the rest of this movie as opposed to the rest of the nights because he managed to get across the lake at the same time as she did. Right. So we then see uh, Guinevere's conversation with Maligant. Uh He has some really solid snark. I think he says, welcome to my palace uh, when she's tied up in a chair in front of him. Yeah, it's he's in a broken down castle, which to me, um, I was going to live in the 20th century, living in the 21st century. When you look at it, it's a beautiful old building. It's a very nice castle. I'd take that castle. I would take that castle, but we'd probably do a fixer upper on it. Um, Maligant hasn't bothered so it's still falling apart and there's holes in it and he's like oh, welcome to my palace and it's it's good I, I have to be honest with you I, I like Maligant probably I mean he's clearly evil um, but I like Maligant a lot more than I do King Arthur in this movie welcome to my palace my lady I definitely like him more than I like Lancelot uh, most definitely more although he does rip her dress in a weird way. I think it's a power move because he then punches the guy beside him and makes him admit that he was the one who ripped 
Guinevere's dress. Ralph, my prince, did you do this? Yes, my prince. You see, this is what Arthur doesn't understand. Men don't want brotherhood. They want leadership. Yeah, I mean, it's very much a trope that you do see in medieval movies about essentially, you know, the way in which somebody is displayed as evil is that they, you know, have some kind of sexual violence against women. And the way he rips her dress, that's definitely that's definitely implied. But on the other hand, since there are so many issues with at least inappropriate sexual advances toward women, I feel like it doesn't work quite as well in this film as it does in some others. No, it definitely doesn't work because everybody is making slightly dodgy advances towards her at this point. Um, Lancelot, or sorry, we then get a scene of King Arthur raging in uh, Camelot, but not wanting to go to war when this is clearly an offensive move from Maligant. And also, this is his fiance who's just been kidnapped and he's kind of dilly-dallying about like, what are we going to do? It's like, maybe go and try to rescue your fiance like just maybe that could be a nice thing to do yeah i don't, i'm not certain if i want to go to full out war it doesn't have to be full out war like send some of those knights to sit around your table doing nothing after them um because they're clearly not doing much but luckily for us and luckily for um the entire movie lancelot has been following the whole time and she has been ripping off bits of her dress so that he was able to follow her. So he manages to trace her to Maligant's castle and tells Maligant that he's a messenger, but he will only deliver the message if he gets to see Guinevere. Um, and I think before this, we may have skipped over it, uh, Maligant throws um, Guinevere into an oubliette. Yes. Uh, uh, so it's a basically, it's a kind of dungeon cell um, in terms of what an actual oubliette is. It's basically just a dungeon cell that has only one opening. The opening is usually from a top. So essentially you're kind of throwing someone into a hole. Uh, it is where you would put important political prisoners, basically. The way it's depicted in this, it's a kind of weird moving platform over some water. Yeah. Uh, which is not quite right, but makes for a very dramatic rescue scene shortly. Yeah, I think it's meant to be representing like a bottomless pit or a very steep pit that happens to have water at the bottom of it. Right. Um, and normally, I mean, it would be somewhat bottomless potentially, but you wouldn't be in danger of falling off a platform into water and drowning or anything like that. Yeah. So, but that's the way they have set this one up. And oubliette is the French word to forget. This is what's called an oubliette. That's French for a place of forgetting. Your quarters, my lady. No gates, no bars, no locks. More or less, or it means like forgetting or forgotten. Yeah, so I think it's where you can put something and then forget about it because it has no chance to escape and there's no way she'd be escaping her own. However, she's not going to be on her own because handsome, handsome Lancelot shows up and manages to kill the guards who were there, knocking two of them into the pit that they eventually jump into themselves. But he gets uh, Guinevere, and they escape. And as you said, there's the sound of running water. They jump into uh, an underground river source. Uh, water source? River source? It's a source of all <laughs> rivers. But it's a source of water. They get washed along, and they get 
kind of like out a waterfall at the end. Now, this is a thing which comes up in a lot of medieval movies. Why are waterfalls so popular in medieval movies? I have no idea, but for some reason, they really like waterfalls and uh, the two of them are soaking wet for the next like 20 minutes of this movie. It has, yeah, it's, I mean, let's be honest, we were all soaking wet watching this. The sexual tension between them was ridiculous. I mean, the turn on of lines like, uh, you know, ah, yes, you should give up your duty and show that you're truly free by making out with me. If you were free to do as you pleased, would you marry Arthur? I am free. As free as you are. Prove it. How? Forget who you are. Let all the world go away. And all the people in it. But you, me, do what you want to do. Yes, that's, it's so weird what he's at. He's like, you're only with him because of your country. But what you really want is to be with me. And he's like, does she don't really? There's Um, not that much evidence. I mean, she's, she's very wet in terms of just having been through a waterfall. That's the only way (laughs) in which it's clear that she's wet in this scene. My favorite bit about this scene is they come out to the waterfall and then they get on a white horse and ride across the beach, which is clearly visible from the castle that they're trying to escape. There is no way in hell Maligan's men aren't like, oh, no, they're on the beach. Let's follow them. But that's what they do. And then they end up in a woods. It's lashing rain because they weren't wet enough. We just need to know just how wet these people are. Um, And then he charms her by folding some leaves and getting some water to fall into her mouth. And I was genuinely looking at this because she she sounds, or the way she acts, it's like, I am the most thirsty woman. And I don't just mean thirsty. I mean, like, for water, um, who has ever lived. It's raining so heavy that if she had just walked out and cupped her hands for five seconds, it would have filled with water and she could have just drank straight from her hands. Or in the waterfall. She's just been surrounded by water for, like, in the context of this movie, probably the last several hours. But it does make for a nice, kind of cute, sweet scene where he's showing how rustic his charm is and his ability to use leaves to collect water. Um, And then he kisses her again. Um, just as the rest of the knights of the round table show up and they're all happy to see Guinevere. Uh, He gets taken back to Camelot and Arthur is so overjoyed that he decides to give him, officially offer him a place on the round table. And what I'm about to offer this man is already his. One seat stands empty. You'd make him a knight, sir. What I offer is no life of privilege, but a life of service. And if you want it, it's yours with all my heart. Sire, we don't know anything about him. They say he fights for money. Sire, perhaps we should discuss this. Enough! The other knights are not that into this. Um, I think they are concerned about the fact that he's this like person who kind of came out of nowhere. Um, they probably also are somewhat concerned by the fact that he just really unsubtly wants to sleep with Guinevere. It's not even close to subtle. <laughs> it's, I mean, it was bad enough at one stage. It's worse now. It just literally keeps it, getting worse. 
Um, but Arthur, yeah, but Arthur does not seem to notice any of these gigantic red flags. No, Arthur is, I mean, maybe he's going slightly deaf. He probably is a little bit blind because he doesn't spot the heavy glances that uh, uh, Lancelot is sending Guinevere's way. Guinevere actually comes in and, and tries to talk Lancelot out of it. Um, and then eventually lets them, you know, I think she thinks that Lancelot's going to walk off and then he looks at her and he's like, no, I'm stayed. I think I finally found what I want in my life. And Arthur is like, yes, it's a place at the round table. And you can tell the other knights are like, <laughs> no, that's not what he means. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's there. It's with her. No, 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 definitely. He's found a place with brotherhood or whatever. And it's just... <laughs> Lady Guinevere understands me well. But here, among you, I have found something that I want more than freedom. I no longer know what life I am to live, only that it would break my heart to leave you. Oh, bravo. Then you'll join us. Romance so is not what weird. he's going for. It's not. Um, and then, because we need to move the plot forward, um, Maligant's people attack Leoness. Yes. And herd them all into a church and set it on fire, uh, which happens before we get a battle and the battle is going to take quite a long time and i'm not really sure how they because because the scenes are set up in such a way that this happens at night time then we have a day for king arthur and his men to get to leoness to try and save them then we have a battle then lancelot and them show up at leoness and these people are inside the church that fire was burning for a long time that's true. They probably would be dead by the time anyone actually got there and somehow miraculously are not. Maybe Buff Jesus saved them. <laughs> Maybe Buff Jesus did save them. But the other thing is that uh, during the battle, Lancelot goes into Berserker Ridge, jumps off his horse, and just basically goes around killing anything that moves. I'm fairly certain that if another knight of the round table had gotten his way, he'd have cut him down. But he goes into Berserker Ridge. All Everyone is really impressed with his sword's um, but as Sarah wrote down her notes, a lot of the other knights still seem very suspicious of him because he clearly wants to bang Arthur's wife. Uh, Arthur and Guinevere have gotten married at this stage. Guinevere is also just sitting here during the battle. Yeah, she's just kind of sitting watching and there's no real reason for him to be there. But they're there. It's very awkward and it seems like a really bad choice to have her just sitting there and she's not actually able in the context of this movie to defend herself in any way and it seems like a terrible idea from a perspective of military strategy for her to be that close to the battle but it was a weird way for this to be gone they've literally just saved her don't bring her into a more dangerous situation right they managed to save everybody we get a little bit of a flashback as lancelot remembers the people his people getting burned in a church so he goes running up to the church and breaks down the door and it turns out the lioness people are all alive um but because guinevere sees this and she knows that lancelot really cared about her people she then decides to give it up for lancelot so they're in this weird kind of villa building and he moves in for a kiss and she's okay with it 
I think she actually does ask him um, while they're in this weird Roman villa in the middle of England. Lancelot? I owe you a kiss. I'm asking you. Um, she actually asks him to kiss her. They are kissing in what is apparently a public place. So in what is a surprise to no one, except apparently at Lancelot and Guinevere, Arthur walks in immediately in the middle of this and isn't happy because his knight is making out with his wife. Um, yeah, I, but it, it, this happens a lot in these movies. Um, does nobody know about subtlety or subterfuge or maybe not doing it clearly in public? I mean, we definitely will at some stage cover the movie Tristan and Isolde, which Tristan and Isolde was the story that Lancelot and Guinevere was based on. Um, Tristan and Isolde kiss on the main road out of the village that they live in like they're just they're literally just off the side if anybody was going anywhere these two guys people are making out and this isn't that much better it's clearly some villa that is or room or something that is part of where arthur and de guinevere and all of the knights of the round table are staying it just doesn't make any sense now for this to have happened but they get caught and then arthur walks in and he is apoplectic um ap- Apoplectic? <laughs> He's angry. Um, he, he uh, at this point, Sarah, hashtag let him die because his only question for Guinevere is, have you given yourself to him? Like, uh... not why did you do this or do you love him? Just have you given yourself to him? So yeah, really all he wants to know is how much have I been cuckolded? Effectively, this is exactly what's That's his only on. question. Have you given yourself to him? Um, he says something about I dreamed a dream of you to him. He also says, I want you to look at me the way that you look at him. It's like, yes, because I bet she lusts after all of her dad's friends. Yeah, exactly. As as all men dream of Ugh. is that you, their children's friends are lusting after them, or their friends' children are lusting after. Oh, them. it's like American but, Beauty. It is like American Beauty. Oh, God, it's <laughs> a movie that. Ugh. Um, but I said it's just weird. It's cringy. I don't like it, Sarah. I didn't like it. No, the whole thing is just disgusting. Lancelot is disgusting. Arthur is disgusting. I hate both of them. Hashtag let them die. Let them die. (laughs) Uh, One thing I do think is very weird is he does say I want you to look at me like you looked at him but at the same time he's been ignoring all of those looks or looks for the entire movie. I guess he noticed the one that she was giving him when they were making out. That was the that, first yeah. time he noticed anything. Mm, that is probably the first time he noticed it. He was like, man, she's looking at him in such a weird way. Also, their lips are... T- <gasps> They're kissing! <laughs> Maybe he's a little senile at this point. Now, this is the point where I messaged Sarah to say, hashtag let him die. Because Lancelot comes in and says, I want to, I want to beg for mercy for her. I don't mind you executing me. But she did nothing wrong. 
I'm the one who showed up. We knew each other from before. You knew her. Um, we'd met and we'd had this like sexual chemistry. It's crazy sexual chemistry between them that we couldn't see on screen, but was there. And also like from when they met before, it's from when they met about what an hour before, ago? like yeah, like like <laughs> three days before she met Arthur. <laughs> so. Uh, well, she did meet Arthur before, when she was six. Ugh. But um, oh, Arthur says, no. And Agravain comes in and says, you can't put the Queen on trial. Basically, don't be a dick. I must see justice done. There will be a public trial tomorrow at noon in the Great Square. Sire, the Queen. In the Great Square. Better to settle the matter in private, sir. You think the honor of Camelot is a private matter? Am I to hide in dark corners as if I'm ashamed? Don't be a dick and also don't air your dirty laundry in public. In public, there's no need for a trial. Like, as as, as, Agravain basically says, we'll get rid of Lancelot. The body will never be found. Go ahead and marry Guinevere. Nobody's going to know about this. The only people I know are me, you, and the priest. And I'm fairly certain from the way uh, Sir Davos is talking, that priest would disappear too. Yeah. If it came down to it. Yeah. But Arthur is insistent, and this is when I said hashtag let him die, he's insistent on putting the two of them on trial in the middle of the town square. And it's just ridiculous. Yep. So they have this trial in the middle of the town square, which... Seems like it's just a really awkward event for pretty much everyone involved. And then Maligant attacks in the middle of it, which I imagine was something of a relief to most people. I'd say most people were like, thank God we don't have to sit through this couple's therapy. I literally would rather be murdered. (laughs) (laughs) Also, do you think this was part of Maligant's plan the entire time? (laughs) We'll, We'll kidnap her, let Lancelot rescue her. And then while they're on trial, because clearly they'll kiss after this, I'll come in and sneak into the city and attack when nobody's paying attention. I think that might be giving Maligant too much credit, but that but Maligant does try to like frame her for adultery in the uh, one of the kind of Lancelot romances. So he does. He yeah. Um, he he. I think he successfully frames her in one. Yeah. Um. Even though they'd never actually done anything, they just at that point, if it's the one I'm thinking of, did held hands. Right, and there's um, also one in which she tries to frame her for adultery, but with Sir Kay, so a different person. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, she would never sleep with anyone other Lancelot or Sir Leon, the best of all the knights. Not um, everyone's favorite knight, the real first everyone's night. Everyone's favorite knight, <laughs> the real first night. Um, it's actually uh, the, we're talking about um, TV's Marilyn there for a second. I think he is first night by the time it comes around to the fifth season. But we can talk about that when we talk about Merlin. I mean, he's um, the only knight who was still alive in the first season. Arthur gets told, I want you to kneel. Maligant is doing his best proper evil guy. Kneel before me. I want your people to see you kneel before me here. Kneel before me or die. It looks like King Arthur's going to go down and kneel. But then he's like, fight! And he picks up his sword. And yeah, he gets shot multiple times by crossbows because they're aiming crossbows at him. Like He had about 10 opportunities to shout fight and jump off the stage. Don't do it when you're kneeling right in front of four crossbow men. It wasn't the best timing. It it was pretty bad timing. Everybody um, 
gets involved in the fight. Um, all of the peasants start to rise up and fight Maligant's men. Lancelot gets into a sword fight with Maligant. Maligant is also very talented with the sword. Lancelot gets handed King Arthur's sword, which is not said or described as Excalibur. No, I don't believe it ever is. It's clearly Excalibur um, because it's the only one of the swords that they're using which has any sort of symbol on the pommel. Lancelot gets his hand on the best sword in the world and then he kicks Maligan's ass and stabs him really quite nicely. Um, he skewers him straight through the stomach and the sword comes out the other back. We don't get to see the blood because it's only PG-13, but I imagine it was a big, messy wound. It's not that brutal, these medieval battles. But Maligant is now dead. So obviously, Arthur, well, what does he do, Sarah? So Arthur is on his deathbed and, uh, you know, apparently because he's dying, has completely forgiven Guinevere and Lancelot, who he was about to execute about five minutes ago, and uh, says to Lancelot, take care of her, implicitly referring both to Guinevere and (laughs) to Camelot, uh, Mm. with the implication that now Guinevere and Lancelot, in addition to not being executed, are going to rule Camelot, I guess? My truest. My first knight. Camelot is your home now. You and a future. A future of Camelot. Take care of her for me. It is so bizarre. And the way he says, take care of her, he might as well say, she's yours now. Here's the keys to my wife. Like, it's it's pretty stanky. It's pretty Uh, Oh, you're really good with a sword. This is the fourth time you've shown me you're really good with a sword. You could totally sleep with my wife that I wanted to kill you for two minutes ago. Because I'm dead now. But he dies. And in all good medieval movies, when a good Christian like... um, King Arthur dies. We obviously have a Viking funeral. Yep. So we have a yep. So a Viking funeral, and you kind of send him off in a boat, and then you set fire to the boat, and so he is effectively, I guess, cremated, and his ashes sink into the water. All right. Now, Sarah, this seems like the kind of thing for which you would have thoughts. I have so many thoughts. So since I have so many thoughts, I wonder if we should at this point actually now move into our next segment, Vera et Falso, in which we talk about what is right and what is wrong in this movie and start with what is wrong because I really want to complain about this Viking funeral a lot. Okay, so obviously I have to sing the introduction. Vera et Falso. Solid on the O. That was was pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good. I'm getting better. Yeah. And swear, as Sarah said, we're going to describe what they get. Uh, we're going to disgrace. We're going to discuss what they get right and what they get wrong. And this week, we're going to start with what they get wrong. So, in addition to a Viking funeral not being something done by people other than the Vikings, which mm-hmm. these individuals are not, it's also something that is completely antithetical to Christianity, and it is made extremely clear throughout this movie that Arthur um, and the people around him are Christian. There are a lot of yeah. priests um, that they are in contact with. We actually do see Arthur at some point praying in front of a really sexy buff Jesus statue. It is a very, I mean, 
I, I'm not sure if we're going to have a picture element to this or we'll have a Facebook. I'm going to screen cap or screenshot that particular buff Jesus. He's pretty damn buff. Yeah, that Jesus worked out. And anachronistic, because I think at the time you told me it looked like a, a 15th century Jesus. Yeah, so I actually looked this up. Um, so I believe it looked probably 15th century to me, but I think it actually might be a Victorian replica of a 15th century statue. Uh Uh, because, uh, so I think a lot of those scenes were filmed in St. Albans Cathedral and St. Albans has a really lovely 15th century rood screen, but a lot of the sculptures had their heads and other parts of them knocked off, um, I guess during the English Reformation and then they, uh, the Victorians Mm. just kind of redid them. So, so it's a recreation of a 15th century statue but basically it shouldn't have been hanging around in the time of king arthur another thing that should be pointed out is that all of his knights are holding crusader swords now mm. um, for those for people who are, are listening uh, a crusader sword is a particular type of sword um, and it's designed in a particular way which allows the blood to get out and it doesn't get caught in armor um, in particular it doesn't get caught in chainmail, which a lot of the saracens would have been wearing at the time i'm um, sorry all the the uh, muslims that they were fighting it's just saracens what a weird thing to say um so the muslims would have been fighting using medieval <coughs> vocabulary using very medieval vocabulary <laughs> and um so they're all wearing crusaders implying that they are in some fact a religious order almost because they're all praying and when lancelot gets inducted into the knights he has to spend the night in a church right um, yeah so i mean clearly and it is a catholic church he's in so clearly this is implying that he's a catholic but as sarah said we end up with our Viking funerals. Yes, and the reason a Viking funeral, and specifically the cremation aspect of the Viking funeral, is deeply unchristian, is because Christians in the Middle Ages, and to some extent, I guess, still now. I don't know. I I don't. I yes, don't know what. Sarah, I don't know what. I don't still, know what Christians do now. We still believe. You still believe. Uh, Christians are deeply concerned about bodily resurrection, um, uh, that the Christian belief, the the Catholic Christian belief, is that uh, upon Judgment Day, you will be, your entire body will be resurrected. The people who are good will have their resurrected bodies be physically taken up into heaven. The people who are bad will have their physical bodies, resurrected bodies, be bodily now punished in hell. And but regardless that there is an expectation that your body is going to rise from the grave. And so because of that, there was a lot of concern about your physical body and what happened to it, including going so far as people had lengthy debates about things like if you get eaten by wolves, how are you bodily resurrected? Yeah, Uh, Sarah, if I did get eaten by wolves, which is one of my top three fears, how um, how would I get? resurrected i think the final call on that was that your remains would be discovered in the wolf poop oh my god what a way to go so getting eaten by wolves is less problematic than being cremated than being cremated um i can just talk about uh, modern ireland for a minute um you have to get a special permit um from your catholic priest to get cremated really and and the ashes then have to be blessed in a particular way in order for them to be counted as thing. And I don't think you're allowed to spread the ashes. 
Right, because then your body would be in a bunch of different locations, and that makes it much harder for you to get resurrected. That was one of the wolf pro. That was one of the wolf problems. Yeah, if you get so, if you get cremated as Catholic, you must keep the urn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as you said, all of the stuff is together, and it's been consecrated in such a way that it allows, you know, it allows the um, the body to still remain together. Yeah. So being cremated and then having your ashes sink into a lake is really not a good Christian way of being buried. And so it's a little bizarre that in this movie, Arthur and his knights are very clearly presented as being basically good medieval Catholics. And yet they have this Viking funeral. Viking funerals just look so much cooler though. But they're so wrong. Yeah. I'm not disagreeing (laughs) with you. They're very wrong. But I for a movie standpoint, you can understand them going, right, we need to show that this is a big, important thing. We can't just have a casket getting lowered into the ground. Or some, In fact, King Arthur wouldn't have been put in a casket in the ground. He would have been likely in a mausoleum. So we can't just show them closing the door in a mausoleum and everyone walking off. So let's fire flaming arrows at his body. So I have an alternative suggestion. Okay, so excellent. what they actually did with a lot of medieval kings is that they removed some of their organs and other body parts and sent them to various locations. So you could just have that scene where you have them dismembering the royal corpse <laughs> and sending it to different fancy awesome. monasteries in the kingdom. Lancelot cuts off, let's just say, particular parts of King Arthur and says, Guinevere, do you want these now that he's dead? Because you didn't want them when he was alive. Oh, she's like, no, <laughs> I'm going to send them to the monastery in Leoness. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Sarah, that's what they get wrong. What did the movie get right? And uh, before we go into this section, I've read through Sarah's notes and I just want to say that I agree with absolutely everything she's about to say. So if I sound quiet, it's because I would sound like an idiot trying to discuss this with her so Sarah what did they get right so the thing I'm actually going to add before I go into what uh, they got right is um, that I would like to have a uh, trigger warning at this point um, uh, because we are going to be talking about uh, rape and basically medieval rape culture Um, so if that is something that is of concern for you uh, be warned that that is something that we're going to be talking about for a couple of minutes now okay Um, so One of the things that I would say deeply, unfortunately, they get right is ideas about consent in the Middle Ages. Um, So in the Middle Ages, you see the development of a tradition that comes to be known later as the tradition of courtly love. And uh, so what this essentially comes down to is that women are idealized for being aloof and therefore hiding their feelings for men. And this very much develops into essentially the beginnings of a kind of no means yes idea that if a, that a woman is expected to say no, and therefore you can't actually trust her saying no as really demonstrating her true feelings and therefore, you know, take her no seriously and not have sex with her. Men, in, de- in addition, are expected to serve women um, when they are in love with them in various ways. So, for example rescuing women when they're being held prisoner um, in a weird ruined castle. (laughs) Um, But in return, it's pretty explicitly indicated that women are expected to then reciprocate this service with love, which includes both romantic interest and sexual favors. 
Um, so Chrétien de Troyes, who we'll talk about more in a little bit, uh, who wrote the Lancelot romance on which uh, this uh, movie in particular is based. Um, uh, Guinevere is actually insulted by another character as doing Lancelot a, quote, grave injustice for not accepting his love and sleeping with him after all of the services he has done for her. Um, uh, a, uh, another author from around the same time from the late 12th century who wrote a manual on the art of courtly love. Um, presents essentially love as the reward and the recompense for these kind of services that men do for the women that they're in love with them. Um, quite charmingly, he even essentially says that if a woman encourages a man at all, which in the context of this movie, I suppose she does by, I don't know, not telling him to fuck off that <laughs> many times, um, that he is then expected to that she is then expected to keep going and to in fact grant her love to him um, and that it is deeply wrong of her to withhold it. Um, so a very charming quote, we believe we must firmly hold that when a woman has granted any man the hope of her love, so if she's even implied that she might be interested or has given him any of the other preliminary gifts, it is very wrong for her to try to deprive him of the love he has so long hoped for. It is not proper for any honest woman to put off without good cause the fulfillment of any of her promises. If she is fully determined not to listen to a suitor, she must not grant him hope of any of the other preliminary gifts of love, because it is considered very deceitful for her not to do what she has promised him. Which is down, like... Right, I knew I said I said I wasn't going to do much, but it's it's hard to listen to that and not think, what the fuck? Yeah, I mean, essentially, it means she does not have permission to withdraw consent. That if she, for yes. example, kisses him once, she just has to kind of keep going with this whole relationship. She should be expected to sleep with him at some point. And if she shows any interest at all, she has to keep going. But it's also. I I remember you saying to me this as we were doing it, that they were obligated to, they had to hear out if somebody was to talk about, I'm in love with you. Right. So, so you're obligated to listen. and But if you listen, that can be argued that you're giving credence to it. Yeah. So the modern equivalent is basically that if a guy on Tinder sends you a dick pic, you're obligated to listen and be polite about his dick pic and him non-consensually sexting you. And then if you're at all then nice to him in response, you're obligated to sleep with him. That is... Ugh. Yeah. Oh God. And it actually gets <sighs> even worse because this at least is when we're just talking about noble women. So noble women at least have technically the ability to say no. Mm. Peasant women, in contrast, are not expected to have the right to say no to a man of higher status. And so uh, the same author, Andreas Capellanus, in his manual on the art of courtly love, in fact, says that if, you know, for some reason you manage to fall in love with a peasant woman, um, you know, you should praise her. You should be nice to her. And then if, you know, she's not into it, it just says, if you come upon a convenient place, do not hesitate to take what you want by force. So essentially that peasant women don't have the right to say no. You should just rape them. Jesus Christ. Um I, what you've written down here is uh, peasants rarely love. They copulate like beasts. Yes. So peasants are presented as not essentially, or at least in some treatments of peasants, are presented as not, in fact, being human enough to have the right to, you know, consent or not consent, essentially. 
<laughs> this brings up a bigger topic, um, which we can talk about at some other point, about whether or not noblemen actually thought that they were better than peasants. But I think even reading that and listening to you, it's hard to to even imagine a world where that's happening. But as you said, that's what it was like back in the time. It is crazy. And I, I certainly will say also, it's not like rape culture has disappeared. I think the fact that this is, that the movie in many ways is true to medieval ideas about consent uh, probably says more about ideas about consent in the 1990s than it does about actual efforts on the part of the creators of this film to get anything right. They didn't make so they... It's probably, yeah, I can't imagine they put in that much research to figure out what you were just after telling us. So it's likely that they were just putting forward a 1995 or 1994, whatever it was filmed, version of what they thought it was like at the times. And they just somehow managed to stumble upon accuracy. And certainly inspired, I would say, to some extent by reading some of the Lancelot romances where this is very much the kind of idea on display. But yeah. I, I, the weird thing about it in the movie is Lancelot is definitely portrayed as a romantic hero. And yeah. looking at it now, as we look back, and um, this is not me saying, hey, look at how woke I am, because that's not a way I would ever describe myself or anybody. But without needing somebody to say to me, this is nasty or this is wrong, I'm watching it going, God, this is pretty wrong, Lancelot. Don't be like, this is pretty douchey. I'm wondering if anybody had that sort of response in 1995. They just seem to have got it right by accident. Now, and it's it's a tough thing to watch and to, to think about in, in a modern setting. What else did they get right about the Middle Ages? So uh, the other thing I will say in general is that... Um... So when you're talking about Arthurian legends, there are a couple of different ways you can go in terms of doing you know, an Arthurian movie. And one way you can go, and there are other films that we'll talk about at some point that have done this, is uh, to essentially have a kind of historical Arthur, in quotes, um, that to essentially place Arthur in the moment where a real King Arthur might have lived, which is uh, in the kind of 5th, 6th century, um, so sort of in the kind of late Roman, um, early post-Roman Britain. Yeah, so that would be outside of the remit of medieval, really. No, that's that's still medieval. At least like that, that's like around five hundred. We say five hundred to fifteen hundred. We claim for the Middle Ages. Okay, um, I'll allow it. <laughs> but the other choice that you can make with an Arthurian movie um, uh, is that you can set it essentially in the time when Arthurian legends were really popular. Um, because when we're talking about Arthurian romance, and especially when we're talking about the whole Lancelot Guinevere story, for example, in particular. Um, We're really talking about a story that arose in the 12th century and continued to be popular over the course of the Middle Ages. Um, Hmm. So this is a movie that I would say, in terms of setting, you know, could be perceived as being set, um, you know, in the kind of 14th and 15th century, or in the kind of 14th or 15th century. I would say that if you're looking at it from that perspective, there are things that are you know, more or less right about, you know, the architecture and things like that. Um, And I do think that's a legitimate choice for an Arthurian romance kind of movie. Yeah, I find, uh, having read a lot of them and having uh, watched pretty much every Arthurian movie, that is the way that most of them seem to go. So they they put it 
in and around about the 14th or 15th century. So it's got that type of architecture and it's got that type of sword. It's got that sort of weaponry. It's got that sort of uh, tactics for war. Um, <clears throat> it's got that sort of sexy long hair look, uh, clean shavenness, <laughs> uh, which apparently a lot of men in this movie were able to do. There were some very good shaves going on, um, considering that they were probably shaving using the edge of their knives or something <laughs> like this, you know, back in the time. Roguish but, um, Richard yeah. Gere has a solid shave. He does have a solid shave. Um, yeah, so that's legit. But that also leads into our next section, Sarah, because you're going to talk about something which is an actual historical figure or Sometimes we'll talk about an historical event, but we're going to talk about a historical figure this time uh, in a section we call Historia et Veritas, yes. which means... History and Truth. History and Truth. Um, so again, I'll have to sing this. Historia et Veritas. And you're going to talk about Christian Detroit. Listeners, please weigh in on whether you want us to actually come up with themes or whether you want Ollie to keep singing, which I think would be fine. Yeah, it's all right, Sarah. <laughs> Someday you're going to have to fill in with the singing and then you're going to know what it's like. No, that's all so on you. So we are going to learn, or Sarah's going to teach us about Chrétien de Troyes. Yes, so Chrétien de Troyes is uh, a 12th century... Sorry, did you, did you just out pronounce it? I, I might have a little. Chrétien de Troyes. 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 Yeah, got it. You've got to simultaneously like do the. You've got to like roll the R a little bit. I, okay, <laughs> Chrétien de Troyes. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. I sound so French. Uh, so this movie draws pretty heavily on um, the Lancelot romance of Chrétien de Troyes, which is uh, basically the earliest version of the kind of standard Lancelot Guinevere story as we know it. Uh, the earliest version of this story that. Basically, there was an adulterous affair between one of Arthur's favorite knights and his wife. Um, so Geoffrey of Monmouth, who I'm sure we'll talk about in a later episode, is the person who originated many of the elements of Arthurian mythology. But Chrétien originated both the idea of the Lancelot-Guinevere affair, um, as well as the Grail myth, which I'm sure also will come up at a different moment. Mm -hmm. um, so he's writing in Old French. So this is a kind of relatively early form of vernacular literature at a time when a lot of texts are still being written in Latin, um, which would be for a relatively limited audience. Um, but this is something that, you know, would then be somewhat more accessible, especially because it might also be available in an oral form. Um, when just when you say that um, these were popular, were they popular with common folk? Because obviously common folk wouldn't necessarily have been able to read um probably definitely didn't read latin but even if they spoke french probably didn't speak or weren't able to read french now so would these stories have been passed along by traveling storytellers or troubadours or so it's primarily intended i would say for a kind of edu a kind of knightly audience which are people who probably know some latin but don't all have very good latin they certainly know how to read though and so that's probably the primary intended audience um, but once you have things that are in Old French or when you're talking about the troubadours in um, Occitan, um, you're going to have, a, they're going to end up being somewhat more accessible because they might sometimes have at least versions of them that do get passed on by kind of traveling storytellers. Nice. Yeah. Um, so they're sort of available to some extent in an oral format and it's for a slightly more popular audience. I mean, that's something that's a little hard to say that much about just because... 
we obviously don't have the written version of exactly what people were hearing in an oral format. Um, yeah. But certainly this would have been somewhat more accessible than something that was written in Latin. So, and he was based at the court of uh, a woman named Marie de Champagne, um, who is the daughter of uh, one of the kings of France, Louis VII, and his first wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, who after their annulment of their marriage, uh, then actually married Henry II of England and became the Queen of England. Sarah. Yes. Why is it not just pronounced champagne? Because I'm trying to speak French. <laughs> okay. Whatever. With your fancy show of champagne. <laughs> I mean, I, went, I really went out on Chrétien de Trois, so I feel like I've got to try at least. Okay. Um, and later on, just uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine is one of the coolest people in history, like literally in history. So I'm sure we will talk about her in, in great detail. We're going to talk about her so much because she is my favorite person. <laughs> She's um, awesome. Yeah, but I'm not going to talk about her that much right now. Um, but uh, her daughter was very much influenced by, um, so Eleanor was from southern France originally, and her daughter was very much influenced by the troubadour tradition, which is really a southern French tradition, and attempted to some extent to kind of bring that to northern France where she was based. Um, and so Chrétien was somebody who is based at her court. Uh, we don't know exactly who he is. There are a couple of people by that name who are based in or near Troyes that people have suggested might be him, but we don't know for sure. Um, there is a pretty good chance, actually, that he was a priest uh, and that he wasn't necessarily super into writing a lot about adulterous affairs. Uh, some people think that he might have not been thrilled with the subject matter that was assigned to him. Um, but that he nevertheless was writing it and um, that he is the person who is very much responsible for this version of the Arthurian legend, uh, this way of talking about the story. Um, entertainingly, also, the actual text on which this um, version and which First Night is most heavily based, um, so that's Chrétien's Lancelot romance, actually has mm -hmm. more sex than the movie from 1995. Really? Yes. Oh. So, uh, do, yeah. Do you have some quotes? I do. So, uh, let's see if I can actually handle reading this. And the knight had what he wanted, for the queen willingly gave him all the pleasures of herself, held him in her arms as he was holding her. It was so exceedingly sweet and good, the kisses, the embraces, that Lancelot knew a delight so fine, so wondrous, that no one in the world had ever had before known anything like it, so help me God. And that's all I'm allowed to tell you. I can say no more. These pleasures I'm forbidden to report were the most wondrous known, the most delightful. That night and all night long, Lancelot experienced incredible joy. Oh my God. So the 12th century version is so much dirtier than the version from 1995. I'm just looking at the next line where it says, and he totally did her. <laughs> that's... Like that's, <laughs> that's pretty much where we're going. Oh my god! Yeah. What's this one? Was a pale one, and the knight had what he wanted for the queen. Oh my! Give him all the pleasures of herself. I am in love with this, and now I insist that we will read this for the book or for the <laughs> podcast. So the Middle Ages, also, fun fact, was less prudish about sex than people tend to think it probably might have been. <laughs> well, that is amazing. I can't, I, I would never have thought, I, 
this is the weird thing about this is obviously we have like Fifty Shades of Grey now, um, where we get to read um, the point of view of Anastasia Steele saying, and then he touched her there. Um, and that's the way it's written in the book. Um, and just in case you're wondering what there was, that's her vagina. Um, and this here is a way better written version of the same thing. Although I do like to point out that it seems to be all the pleasure was going towards him. Yeah, I think they tend to be more interested in men's pleasure than women's pleasure, usually. Mm-hmm. But as long as uh, all night long Lancelot was experiencing incredible joy, that's all that matters. Yep. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, no no Diana Gabaldon, uh, as prominently featured on your other podcast, but uh, still relatively, you know, sexually explicit as far as medieval things go. We will um, have my other podcast partner on, Emily, to um, discuss Diana Gabaldon's um, masterwork, uh, Outlander, and we may watch an episode of it, but I will warn you, it is pure filth, and for anyone listening, it's the filthiest of filth. Even filthier than Chrétien de Troyes. (laughs) It's not as well written, and it's probably less sexual overall, because she talks about you know, throbbing members, etc. But anyway, let's move on to our next section. And our next section is called Fabula or Fabula Nostra. And what does Fabula Nostra mean? Uh, so basically it means our story. And so this is a segment in which we talk about uh, our alternative movies that we would make instead of this movie, First Night. Um, okay. So why don't you go first this time? <clears throat> well, first of all, I, I need to sing our intro. <clears throat> Fabula Nostra, <laughs> which is our alternative movies. And my version of First Night is I'm going to get literal on this one. And I'm going to take the idea of somebody being the first night. So I'm going to imagine that we are back in the fifth century and there are battles going on. And I'm going to suggest that we are going to have a medieval version of Iron Man. And some guy is going to create the first suit of armor. The first one where he can actually move in properly. The first one where he's actually able to take sword hits directly on him. And it's going to turn him into a battle god, right? So he's going to create this suit of armor and basically go around killing as many people as possible. But then eventually it'll be an arms race where other people are creating suits of armor. And then he has to get really good with his sword to be able to fight them off. And there'll probably be a love interest in there somewhere um let's just say she's a a widow who lives in a castle because that's where all the best uh people are and um yeah so he's going to fall in love with her and then he's going to have to defend her her honor um using his suit of armor so it's going to be a tale about the literal first knight the first person to wear a suit of armor and go into battle and how that made him basically the baddest of all the badasses i like it and i'm also looking forward to uh you know our nice lady in this because as we all know being a widow is the goal for women in the middle ages back in the middle ages (laughs) if they could find a rich husband who would then die on them nice and easily they would be a widow and then they'd be able to run their estates themselves and they weren't forced to get married afterwards so she's going to fall in love with our version of iron man um because he's just so witty and charming oh my god maybe i can make him a playboy philanthropist (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he will be played by Robert Downey Jr. 
No, no, Robert Downey Jr. is not going to be big enough to to play a knight. He wouldn't be able to hold the actual armor up without it having the the power. He's going to be played by. Oh, see, I'm always tempted to just go to Rock. Oh, but, um, that guy whose name I'm blanking on, uh, who plays Bane and Mad Max and Fairy Road. You mean you mean it could be played by sexy, sexy Tom Hardy? Yes, sexy, sexy Tom Hardy. And then. Sexy, sexy Tom Hardy can play first night. Yeah. And he can growl all he wants. <laughs> Tom Hardy. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's that's my version of first night. I like that. So I went... And Sarah, yeah. what would yours be? So I went more sticking with Arthurian legend, but I think it would be really fun to actually do something that was really solidly set in the 12th century context. Um, so that you keep the kind of material of the Arthurian legend in this narrative, um, but that you really focus on uh, sort of drawing in elements that are really taken from these kind of 12th century French courts where they developed these ideas of courtly love. Um, I think it would be cool if then also, because the story also has nowhere near enough women, I think it would be cool if you introduce something like an Eleanor of Aquitaine-esque figure, um, mm-hmm. uh, with like, I think like Helen Mirren would do an awesome, like Ellen, like Eleanor of Aquitaine actually, or kind of like, I don't know, Guinevere's mother kind of figure. I think that would be a lot of fun. That would be awesome. Yeah. And I think after your description of Chretien and, um, and description of the movie, I would like a spin off of that, which is actually about Chretien writing the stories and how he's maybe being cast out by the court but his books are becoming super popular because they're so goddamn racist and that he's this poor priest and he has this patroness who's like making him write these sex books and he really doesn't want to write these like adulterous he sex books exactly <laughs> but he's such a good writer and he does what he's told oh and he should be played by paul bettany um yes he should be played by paul bettany or tom hardy <laughs> Everyone should be played by Tom Hardy. <laughs> it's true. But, um, or The Rock. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so just, Sarah, who would you have as your Lancelot? I'm going to go for like a really sexy Lancelot, and I'm going to do Chris Hemsworth. We're all dreaming of doing Chris Hemsworth, but I could totally see him as a Lancelot. And who would be the lucky Guinevere? I am going to give Natalie Portman another chance to play an adequate love interest to sexy Chris Hemsworth. Um, she did not entirely manage this in an ideal way in the early Thor movies, but I think that is partly the fault of the movies. And I'm going to give her a chance here to be our Guinevere. I'm going to say it's almost entirely the fault of the first two <laughs> Thor movies. Give, give the lady some sort of, oh, I don't know, um, meaningful role. Yeah, don't just say she's a physicist and then get her to say random stuff which may be physics related. Give her less but than nothing to do. I mean, more than nothing to I, do. I wonder if there's some way I can work Thor in as an episode. Then we but can talk about physics, which you know things then about. we can talk about physics, which I do. Um, but that leads us on. So we've got two movies, possibly three movies there. Um, but it leads us on to our final thing, which is where we're going to rate um, the movie and a scale of one to five and it's called Estimatio Sing <clears throat> Estimatio <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
it, someday I'm going to shock you by actually showing up and being able to sing. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll agree to do it, but I almost definitely won't. I'm almost definitely going to make you do it. Okay. <laughs> I don't mind, Sarah. For the, for the good of the podcast, I will do it. So, Sarah, what is your rating on a scale of one to five? I have been going back and forth a lot on this rating because on the one hand, I actually could see using this movie to teach Arthurian legend and actually maybe to teach ideas about, uh, you know, courtly love and consent in the Middle Ages. But on the other hand, the gender politics are just so incredibly depressing for a movie that was made in 1995. So I think ultimately I'm going to come down on a three for this. So you're giving it a three out of five. Yeah. And you're taking marks off because gender politics are terrible. And in 1995, they should have done a better job of not giving in to Arthurian levels of sexual advancement from men over uh, poor or defenseless women. Yes, I'm taking marks off for that. And I am also taking off marks for the Viking funeral. (laughs) <laughs> yes, you're getting a whole mark taken off the Yeah, the Viking right. funeral so, actually I think deserves a whole point taken off <laughs> I am also going to score this a 3 and I'm going to take marks off because there is no way in hell Julia Ormond his character makes any sense whatsoever saying I'm doing this for love and then she acts so timid around Arthur they have met, she, he's clearly when I like, I mean, he is forty years too old for this girl. Um, it's really gross. It's a weird power dynamic. He's clearly this big country. He says, "I want to you to. I I will protect you anyway." And it's in such a gross, like just the, the whole thing is gross. Yeah. Um, that they would be getting married, and then Lancelot isn't a much better viable alternative because he's effectively going after a married woman who he knows like he knows that she isn't in love with King Arthur he knows that she is doing this under duress and yet he's still going after full well knowing that there is no good outcome like I mean even if she does decide to go for him and they get on their horses and ride away King Arthur would just follow you like you're not escaping at this point so I take a whole point off for that and I'm taking a point off because the swordplay is very good, and obviously, as myself and Sarah have discussed many times, that's what I come to these movies for. The swordplay is very good and entertaining, but it's not particularly visceral, and it doesn't really feel like it's got impact. And I know it's a PG-13 movie, but even within that, there's a little bit too much of, here's the tip of my sword going left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. And it's yeah, it's a little bit too frenetic. So I'm going to take a point off for the action scenes in it. So I'll still give it a 3 out of 5. It's a solid good time. Watch it with your date. It'll be fun. Yeah. So you thought the medieval battles were insufficiently brutal? Insufficiently brutal Mm. for what it was trying to depict. All right. So what are we going to be talking about next time? Well... I've decided that we should go with a theme with our podcast because the first movie we did was Braveheart and that brought up um, (laughs) Primo Nocto, which is what the movie calls it, which is First Night. So then we did First Night. So I'm going to continue with this theme and we're going to do a movie called Last Nights uh, starring Clive Owen and featuring 
the least practical swords that have ever been created or invented on TV or the movies. And I am including lightsabers in this least practical thing. Lightsabers are death traps and you you would die using <laughs> one. I still think they're safer than the swords that everybody seems to use in this last night's movie. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing you talk about swords and I will talk about history. That doesn't involve swords because I don't really know anything about swords. There is a lot of history in this because this movie thinks that all of the world is within 10 minutes walking distance of each other. So we will have a lot of fun. Yes, this movie makes some really interesting choices about the medieval world that it creates, which is a fascinating medieval world that has nothing to do with historical reality, but is very interesting. Interesting. Sarah, would you like to tell people how they can get in contact with us? I would love to. So first of all, if you have been enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcasting platform and also if you have any feedback for us we encourage you to get in touch with us via email our email address is media.evilpod at gmail.com that's m-e-d-i-a dot e-v-a-l at gmail.com and uh, you can also find us on twitter at mediaevilpod where i will occasionally tweet things relevant to this podcast and the middle ages and i will Never tweet because I do not know how. If you want to find me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me under my real name. So you can find me at Sarah Itch Decker on either of those platforms. Um, and Ollie, where else can they find you on the internet? You can find me at my other podcast. I do one called Best Acquaintances with my best friend Emily. Um, we are two people who've never met and we record interviews with people that we only know from the internet so we basically pick one of our friends that we know from various facebook groups we give them a skype call and we just talk to them about you know themselves and it turns out that everybody is interesting like people say oh i can't talk about anything there's nothing there's nothing interesting about me and then literally every single episode you'll find at least one or two nuggets of pure gold where people are telling you stories and it just turns out that they've they've lived pretty much amazing lives every single person at some stage has done something extraordinary to the rest of us it might feel ordinary to you but it's extraordinary to people who aren't living through it at the time um that's how myself and sarah met mm -hmm. uh hers is a very good episode and it's uh it's really great i recommend it to everybody so it's called best acquaintances and you can find us in the best acquaintances podcast group on facebook as well which is just full of nice people doing nice stuff absolutely it's good sarah always a pleasure you too and we'll see you all next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.